Well, I think everybody knows that we are facing some really terrible problems in this world and that nobody knows how to solve them. There's no religion, there's no ideology, there's no politics that knows how to deal really with climate change. And the problem is really deeper than what we actually do about it. It's how we're thinking. Millions, maybe even billions of people are still thinking about God the way that people did in biblical times when women were just subhuman chattel, the earth was flat, and what was the main energy source? Slaves. <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> that world is completely out of sync with ours. There's no way that you can have a coherent picture and have that kind of a God and our kind of a world. So what happens? Three things. Either people accept being just incoherent in their minds, or they feel pressured to go either toward atheism or toward denial of scientific reality. And that means that we are in big trouble because we are facing these problems with one hand tied behind our backs. Now, looks like there's a few other women in here who will remember that in the olden days when we were denied admission to pretty much every profession, we used to say, why should society throw away half of its talents to maintain a prejudice? In those days, uh, we were throwing away half the talents of our population by uh, eliminating the female half. But now, in some sense, we're doing the same thing again. And that is that each person that feels forced to choose between spirituality and science is throwing away half of their abilities. And we cannot afford that. We actually need every advantage we can muster to get through this next few decades. I was certainly one of those people with one hand tied behind my back. I was an atheist all my life. And then about 27 years ago, I, I found myself in a 12-step program. And for those of you who I don't know what it is. It is a spiritual program to recover from whatever addiction, chocolate, alcohol, doesn't make any difference what it is. And that was the first time I was ever actually forced to reconsider my really childhood opinion that God was simply a fiction. And what happened was that the two sides of my life really collided over the past 30 years and they fertilized each other greatly to my to my great surprise so let me explain what the two sides were the first is that for 30 years I have been living on the front lines of the cosmological revolution I'm married to one of the scientists who actually created the modern picture of the universe the theory of cold dark matter and in the 1980s uh, I was teaching at UC Santa Cruz. Uh, I was a philosopher of science and um, watching, basically, watching my husband work on this amazing new theory. Let me just explain what the theory was trying to do. There was a great mystery at the time, and the mystery was, if the Big Bang was symmetrical in all directions, why isn't the universe just a bigger soup of particles? How come there are gorgeous galaxies, spirals and ellipticals, and they're scattered throughout the universe, but not randomly. They lie along filaments as if you had sprinkled glitter on invisible lines of glue, and each fleck of glitter was a galaxy of hundreds of billions of stars. And then where the filaments intersect are clusters, big clusters of galaxies. Well, what happened to the soup? That was the mystery. What force or forces could have transformed particles and energy into the large-scale structure of the universe? Now, I want to show you a three-minute video. Uh, it's an astro video of a trip from Earth, a little bit through our galaxy, then out of the galaxy and across the supercluster to a giant galaxy about 60 million light years away. Why? Why do I want to show you this? I'm going to be talking about God because I want to introduce a way of thinking about God that may seem impossible <clears throat> at first. But it's 
Incidentally, that is the cover of my book. The subtitle is Spirituality, Science, and the Future of Our Planet. But the important thing that you do need to remember is this. You really can't know what's possible or impossible until you know what universe you're living in. So we're going to take this trip. I wish it were darker here so you could see better. But we're facing the Orion. I, apparently the blind is broken. <laughs> so um, we're starting out on Earth facing the Orion constellation. And we're going to be heading toward the sword of Orion. As you get close to it, you notice it's not a sword, it's not a star, it's a nebula. It's actually a nursery where new stars are forming. This is called the Horsehead Nebula, 1500 light years from home. Now, all of these stars are mapped. This is scientific data not random locations. Here's another uh, star nursery called the Rosette. See, there's a lot. Of, there's a lot of dust in the galaxy. Here you see not a nursery of new stars, but the remnant and at the center, if you look carefully, you can see a pulsar beating like a heart. Now, the dust in the galaxy actually blocks a lot of our view of the stars, so we're going to rise up and out, and then you can see what a large galaxy like ours looks like. away from the galaxy and the satellite galaxies of our galaxy, every dot you see here is a galaxy, not a star, a galaxy with billions of stars in it. Here's our big neighbor, Andromeda, and as we go through this somewhat smaller galaxy called Triangulum, we're two million light years from home. and his team developed says that everything you see in this video and all the galaxies completely out to the visible, out to the edge of the visible universe are less than half a percent of what's actually out there. There are two enormous invisible presences in the universe called dark matter and dark energy. And dark matter, it's not made of atoms, but it has gravity. It pulls ordinary matter, the kind of stuff we're made of, together at the same time that dark energy is flinging space apart. And the interaction of these two giant forces has spun the visible galaxies into being. And that has created the only possible homes for the evolution of planets and life. So... 
Dark matter plus dark energy, the name of the theory, the nickname anyway, is the double dark theory, the official, oops, wait a second, we get back the official name here, come back here, come on, there you go, no, that's not what we want. double dark theory. There we are. And the technical name down here is called Lambda CDM. Okay, now a little teeny bit more information here. This is the visible part of our galaxy. It's 100,000 light years across the visible part of our galaxy. This is the halo of dark matter that surrounds our galaxy. It's shown here in light, of course, but it's really invisible. And the halo is one and a half million light years across. And this kind of thing surrounds all galaxies. Here's how it fits into the larger scale structure. This is the cosmic web of dark matter. It's invisible, but that is what's out there. We're not showing the dark energy because we're not showing movement in this. Now, early on, of course, there was no way to know if this theory was true. But psychologically, the way that serious scientists do, they moved in with total commitment to this theory. And they spent decades exploring every nook and cranny of the theory, trying to figure out what does it predict that astronomers could possibly observe. They ran simulations on NASA supercomputers. Over years, countries around the world built all kinds of instruments on mountaintops and in space. And now, the data is really overwhelming, and it's all in support of this theory. So this is actually the new picture of the universe. So living with the discovery of this for 30 years had a really immense impact on me. I felt like I was being introduced to layers of reality that I had never even imagined. It's really as though our universe is a wild ocean of dark energy, and on that ocean, there's still billions of ghostly ships made of dark matter. And at the tips of the tallest mass of only the largest ships are little beacons of light. And those beacons are what we've been calling the galaxies. We don't see the ships, we don't see the ocean, but now we know they're there through the double dark theory. So this theory tells us our origin story with the authority of all the evidence, and it does not include God. So, so why would I revisit my opinion that God was a fiction? So here we come to the second half of the, the, the other side of my life, and that is that when I was 12 years old, my mother put me on a diet. And I ended up being on a diet for my whole life. My weight would go up and down. It was unbelievably frustrating and, you know, lots of self-criticism. And I finally realized that dieting would never bring me peace of mind and that I had an actual addiction to mindless eating. And that the only way I was likely to recover was with the 12-step program that I mentioned before. So now the idea of a 12-step program is that you can't simply stop something that you're addicted to because that's the definition of addiction. You can't stop. But that with the help of a higher power, you can recover. However you choose to define higher power. Now, that was an enormous motivation for me, but I was an atheist. There was no way I was going to buy somebody's notion of higher power or God or trick myself into believing anything. So obviously lots of people are like me. We're told to act as if we believe in a higher power. So what I did was I would imagine turning my food decisions over to this higher power. I would have a conversation with some part of my mind as if it were separate. It was not separate. And I had no illusion that it was. But um, the amazing thing was, this turned out to be incredibly worthwhile. It, it was really as though I were having, as if I were writing a dialogue between two characters, myself and my higher power. And I realized that what I was doing, when I was thinking of the higher power as a loving but 
unbullshitable witness to my thoughts. That's actually what I wished I were. And imagining that focused me and my consciousness became less dishonest and I, uh, I was not in denial. I was more courageous. My eating habits changed drastically. I was less judgmental. I got along better with everybody. I was happier. I had no idea why. Now, 12-step programs do use the word God, but they never tell you what it means. What it is, what they do is they challenge you to find an understanding that works for you. And if you don't have an understanding of higher power that works for you, you just keep looking. You recover by keeping on trying to understand. You don't actually ever have to understand. But you have to keep trying. And I suddenly realized that I had never tried to understand God because I thought it was a complete fiction. I didn't think there was anything there to understand. But I realized that if I didn't at least try, I had no other alternative but misery. And that was a turning point for me. Everything changed when I decided to become just willing to try to understand. It forced me to start listening to people differently. It forced me to stop jumping to conclusions when I would hear God talk and try to understand what were people getting at? What was it that they were saying independently of the metaphor? So I began that way learning the why of God, but not the what. Meanwhile, back home, I was watching the Double Dark Theory emerge. I was following the developments. I was going to the conferences with Joel. I was privy to mysteries of the universe that virtually nobody but the experts knew about. I felt like I was doing metaphysical insider trading. <laughs> I paid attention to who was working on different details. What do I mean if this term, team turned out to be right and not the other one? And no culture in the history of the world has ever tested their view of the universe the way these scientists were doing. And Joel and I talked about it all the time. We tried to figure out how could we communicate this to non-scientists? Could we put it into some kind of a humanly meaningful context? We taught a course at UC Santa Cruz for 10 years called Cosmology and Culture. We wrote these two books together. We gave, I don't know, 100 talks around the world about our books. And no matter where we spoke, sooner or later, somebody would always come up with the same question. And what do you think the question was? Do you believe in God? At that point, Joel would always hand me the microphone. <laughs> and I would just have to say, I don't know. The thing is, I'm only interested in God if it's real. If it's not real... As far as I'm concerned, there's nothing to talk about. But real for me doesn't mean common sense real. It means real in the double dark universe. And science, you see, is something that's not optional. Once you know something, you can't ignore it. Real means you don't have to believe in it. It exists the same way that matter and gravity and culture exist. We don't have to believe in these things. We have to understand what they are. And then we can choose whether we care about them or not. So I realized that if I want a real God, I have to look for it in reality. And the question I really needed to ask is this one. Could anything actually exist in the universe as science understands it that is worthy of being called God? This instantly eliminates the question, does God exist? Because we're starting with what exists and asking the question, what do we really mean by the word God? Now, here's why I don't consider myself an atheist anymore. And that's because there is something truly godlike in this universe. And if we recognize that godlike thing is God, then all doors open. And what is this godlike thing? Well, I'm going to explain based on the idea of emergence, the scientific concept of emergence. How many people here have heard of that? Oh, good, a substantial number. I'll just give you an example. My favorite example is ants. Certainly everybody has watched ants since they were a child. 
ants are very simple creatures. They follow pheromone trails, scent molecules they, can, they, they are aware of. And they can tell the difference between meeting two ants in a minute and 200 ants. But that is about the extent of their communication abilities. But if you observe 10,000 of them together as a colony, the ant colony has all kinds of sophisticated abilities that the ants don't have. The colony is continually adjusting the number of ants foraging for food based on the number of mouths to feed, on how much food is already stored in the nest, how much food is in the vicinity, whether there are other ant colonies out there competing. The, cal the colony makes all these calculations and not a single ant understands it. So what is a colony? It can build an anthill taller than a man. And yet there's not a single ant architect, not a single ant engineer. The colony acts like an organism. What it is is an emergent phenomenon. An emergent phenomenon comes into being on a larger size scale because of the complexity of the interactions of the parts on the smaller size scale. So it's a law of our universe at almost all size scales that increasing complexity generates new phenomena. Another example, your brain. You've got trillions of neurons in there. No neuron is conscious. But when you put them all together and you let them interact, the interaction creates consciousness. Consciousness emerges from the interaction. It never existed before it emerged, before there was that complex situation. And it turns out almost everything that we do collectively spawns some kind of emergent phenomenon. So a market, a market in oil and stocks and whatever, a market is an emergent phenomenon. Markets interacting create an even more complicated emergent phenomenon called the global economy. That's so complicated that nobody understands it, and the experts don't even agree on what the rules should be about. But it does show that an emergent phenomenon can emerge from parts which are themselves emergent phenomena. The economy, the government, the media, these are emergent phenomena which are very real. They have enormous power over us. But they're not human. They're not human-like. But collectively, we have enormous power over them. So what I'm arguing, or not really arguing, but merely suggesting, is a god that is real for human beings can only have emerged from humanity. From what aspect of us? Clearly not from trading goods or gossiping, which is what I think the media eventually arose from. But it would have to have come from something that is so deep in us that it was there before the very first ideas of gods ever arose. And I think that looking for the origin of God, we really find the origin of what makes us human, what really separates us from the other animals. What separates us is that we change and grow not just to adapt to external circumstances, because all the animals do that. We change and grow because we aspire to things. Now, aspirations are not the same thing as desires, like for food or sex or security. Every animal has those desires. Aspirations reach beyond survival needs, they shape each of us humans into a unique being. They are what each of us yearns toward. We all aspire to different things, but we all aspire all the time, even if we're not exactly conscious of what our truest aspirations are. So I would say that aspirations are just as real as we are because they define what each of us is. We humans are the aspiring species. By the laws of emergence, something has to have come into being.
from the incredible complexity of all of humanity's aspirations interacting. And this is what I'm thinking God is. God is endlessly emerging from the staggering complexity of all humanity's aspirations interacting across time. Now let's think about what this emergent phenomenon has done. It has produced the languages and the imagery and the symbolism that we all use to think with. No individual could ever have come up with concepts like universe or science or justice or self-determination. These are collective creations. These very ideas are collective creations that developed over many generations of people trying to understand, trying to express their understanding, trying to share. Emergence is a two-way street. The emerging God is perpetually feeding us, giving us what we need to think with and to relate to each other, and it is continually fed by human aspirations and strengthened when we have better ones. So God did not create the universe, but God created the meaning of the universe, and that is really what matters to us. An emerging God is younger than we are, or maybe the same age. So it couldn't have created the universe, or Earth, or us, or any of the things that the Bible says God created. But God's emergence from humanity has made the universe meaningful. And the meaning of the universe is all that can matter, because nothing that's meaningless can matter to anybody. If we didn't have a meaningful way a set of concepts, of ideas, ways of discussion, if we did not have a meaningful way to think about the universe, it would not exist for us any more than it exists for the other animals. An emerging God, in some sense, is our collectively built bridge to the reality beyond our immediate material surroundings. Our bridge to the universe, our bridge to everything abstract. You know, so many people worry about how they can connect to God. Do I have to do it through meditation? Whatever. The fact is, if God is emerging, that all of us are developmentally plugged into God from infancy. Because even babies aspire. Here's this lovely book by a local professor here at Berkeley, Alison Gopnik. The Philosophical baby, what children's minds tell us about truth, love, and the meaning of life. Let me just read you one little tiny thing that she says there. Children's brains create causal theories of the world, maps of how the world works, and these theories allow children to envisage new possibilities and to imagine and pretend that the world is different. And this is the birth of aspiration, and Alison Gopnik has found it in babies starting around 18 months. So, perhaps you're thinking, well, this emergent phenomena might exist, but is it God? And that's a good question, because nothing can really be God, just because it makes some sort of intellectual sense. I, I did not get into this God inquiry out of intellectual curiosity. I got into it because I'm in it for results. A God that is worthy of the name for me has to help me do what I could not do alone. And it does. It has to help me do the essential things that to me define it as God. It didn't have to create the universe. It doesn't have to be omniscient. But these are the things that it has to do for me to think of it as God. Give us hope and confidence and a big, meaningful perspective of life and on ourselves. Nurture our aspirations. Open our minds to our true place in the universe. Open our hearts by helping us to experience our deep ties to each other, to our ancestors, to our planet, to our descendants, and to the cosmic future that we are part of. 
inspire our personal quest for meaning and bravery in an often frightening world, and perhaps most important of all, give us common ground. Less than that is not worthy of being God. But more than that is unnecessary. So do we have to call this emergent phenomenon God? No. It's real no matter what you call it. When I was, I, I mentioned this at another talk and somebody said, well, why don't we just call it the force? <laughs> well, here's why. It's because every person on earth over the age of maybe two or three knows the word God and has some sort of association with it, however primitive or ridiculous it may seem to the rest of us. Everyone has some sort of idea. The idea of God is the most dangerous and the most exploited idea ever. I grant you that. But it is the most empowering and inspiring idea that humans have ever invented. In fact, there can't be a more powerful concept because if there were, it would be God. <laughs> now, question. Everybody here is very smart and everyone knows what's going on in the world. Are we going to hand this most powerful concept in the world over to the most backward and narrow and dangerous thinkers on this planet? <laughs> if we cling to an obsolete image of God, even to deny its existence, even to identify as atheists by denying its existence, we are doomed to smallness and bickering and possibly extinction. But we can, instead of ending this conflict, we can transcend it. We transcend it by letting God be real in the real world and in harmony with the real universe. To solve global problems, we need an accurate scientific map of reality, but that will never be enough. We also need a spiritual foundation for cooperation that is coherent with the map. We don't have that yet. What's coherent is to realize that God is not the king of the universe. God is a planetary phenomenon, and we earthlings are all participating in it. Our task is to understand and to cultivate our relationship to it, and we can start by practicing living consciously in the same universe where this kind of a God can exist. Doing that, to me, is a kind of a prayer. So I'm, gonna, I'm going to lead you in prayer. Now watch this. All educated people today believe correctly that the sun doesn't actually rise and set, but the earth is turning. And yet, almost nobody experiences that. It's as if they know it, but they can't believe it. But it's important to believe it. It's important to know that we really are part of this universe. Okay, so let's do a little experiment here. Imagine that you're lying on your back in soft grass on a warm spring afternoon looking up at the sky, your feet toward the south. Spread out your arms and legs and feel the earth below you. You have nowhere to go. You're just part of the earth. As the day is ending, slowly turn your head to the right and look at the reddening sun. Feel your patch of earth turning away from the sun, heading into night. Just as the horizon on your right rises to meet the sun, turn your head all the way to the left. And there you see on the eastern horizon the moon, huge and orange, appearing at the moment of sunset. Tonight is the night of the full moon, when sun and moon are in balance. It was in many cultures a night of power. Feel your patch of earth moving slowly toward the moon. As the horizon falls away from the moon, the moon becomes whiter 
because you're seeing it through less and less atmosphere. Let time pass. Let the earth carry you around until the last glow of sunlight disappears and stops masking the stars. You have traveled into night with your planet. You are the side of the planet traveling into night. That was a prayer. That was a prayer because you brought your consciousness into alignment with the reality where the emerging God exists. Something miraculous is emerging from us humans and we have the choice to act as if it's real and as if this godlike phenomenon is God. We can attempt in the spiritual quest what I watched my husband and his scientific colleagues do when they developed the double dark picture of the universe. We can mentally move into this new theory of God with all our furniture and try it out. Test it. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that if you do this, it will change your life. But to do it, we actually need more than this. What is at stake on Earth with climate change is more than just us. It could be the entire future of intelligence in the galaxy. Because we humans could be the seed of it all. The fact that intelligent creatures like us have evolved from nothing but particles and energy is so extraordinarily unlikely that it may never have happened anywhere else. We don't know that it has. That God then emerged from us may be the most extraordinary thing of all. I think we should act as if we are the seed of intelligence in the galaxy, because we might be. The aspiration to live up to that standard would enrich God beyond all measure, and by the laws of nature, the emerging God would pay us back. The chance to redefine God is actually in our hands, and the way that we do it is going to play a leading role in the shaping of future global civilization. So this is an opportunity for our species. Let's not waste it. Thank you. Thank you, Nancy. So we have time for questions, and we have one right here. <laughs> I've been a member of this church uh, for a long, long time. I probably attended over. Who's talking? I, I've I probably attended over a hundred of of these personal theology talks, and I have to say, from my point of view, this was the best I've ever attended. Thank, Thank you very you. much. <laughs> And, and I think you've converted me from a hardcore atheist into a true believer. <laughs> I haven't been here nearly as long as Ray. Uh, I've attended not as many. This has been the best for me, too. But it hasn't quite converted me. And the reason it hasn't converted me is... I, I think you, you sort of put your finger on what the real question is when you talked about why keep the word God and what you appealed to was, well, the history of human thought and, and culture and ideology has the word and there's a lot of baggage attached to it. We can get rid of the baggage, but we should keep the word. I don't see that why you think that. Uh, you could assume that you came into this intellectual world at a point when there hadn't been the history of religion and the history of the use of the word God, you married your husband, had never heard the word God, and you could have given exactly the same talk and you wouldn't have felt there was anything missing. It's only because the word has a history that I think you feel compelled to use it. Uh, first of all, <clears throat> I could not have been born into this world without God. Because um, 
so much of our world really is a result of earlier people's belief in God. I think that we really owe religion a huge debt for vastly increasing the human imagination. Now, people confuse their imagination with reality. This is true. But we do need imagination. And if you look at art, the entire history of art, it's almost all, really until the 13th century, it was pretty much all spiritual expression. So our entire culture is built on that. Now, there are two different levels of uh, God. One is the social level that we've just been talking about now. But the other is the personal level. There's a reason why almost everybody in the history of the world has had some kind of idea of God to fall back on. There's a reason, and that is that human beings need meaning. My favorite um, expression of, how, of, of why this is so is from Jung. And um, Jung, I, I saw an interview with him on video, I guess it was in the 1950s or something, and the interviewer asked him, does God exist? And Jung said, I don't know if God exists, but what I do know is that every human being has a God capacity. And I was really struck by that word, God capacity. Because, I mean, I'd read enough of Jung to know that he felt that people need meaning in their lives. They need to have a sense of how they fit into the universe. They need to have a big picture that they are part of. And they will take one that is completely untrue rather than have none at all. Meaning has always been more important than truth for our species. We cannot have truth without meaning. We can have meaning without truth. But the ideal is to have them both be coherent, and that is what I'm trying to get at. I want a meaningful picture for myself. If I want to pray, I want to know I'm talking to something that, exi that exists. It can't talk to me. But I can't, know the, I can't know the nature of God, because the whole idea of emergence is that I'm at the lower level. I can... Uh, you. Emergence can explain to me how a godlike phenomenon can have come into existence, but it cannot tell me what it's like. That is something that has to be discovered. I mean, if you just look at economics, which is quite a bit simpler, I think, than God, um, we know there's an economy. And there are so many people out there trying to figure out how it works. And they do. They make discoveries. And every time somebody makes the littlest discovery, they get a Nobel Prize. Yay! Somebody... Okay? So the thing is, we are constantly in relationship with this economy. We're trying to understand how it works. We know it's real. We know it's, it's affecting us. And we're, we can study it and we can gradually learn more about it. And I think we really need to think about God that way. I think that we, we can have an origin story for God. And we can try to study it, but we're never really going to know what it is. Still, the fact that it's real, for me, is much more important than the nature of it. So I just know that from my own experience... It's also opened me up so that I can talk to so many people I couldn't talk to before. I could not relate to thousands of people because I just, my mind just shut down. And, you know, I was really looking for the wrong thing. I was looking for a common metaphor. We didn't have a common metaphor, but we have a common humanity. And that, I think, is part of, of the part of, of accepting the word God. To realize that that part of humanity, that search for meaning, we really share. If we can find a common metaphor, it's great. But if not, people like me need a metaphor like this one. So um, I love your energy, and I and I resonate with a lot of it really deeply and how it works. But I want to look at it a little bit differently. You're talking about aspiration as something that appears with humanness. I'm going to suggest that aspiration appeared in the very instant of the creation of the universe. And I will use this as a metaphor. 
the molecule molecules were create molecules and atoms were created i'm going to say that aspiration began to work right there the coming together of oxygen and hydrogen to make water and this process of aspiration i think has been going on at all levels and i i would suggest that we are just one of these aspirations i would give our aspirations stuff maybe a little different name i'd call it the development of character but we're always uh, there's something innate in our physical being that uh, aspirate those ants building uh, the nest it's not it doesn't i i guess i'm i'm somewhat loath to think it is only happens on the on the uh, he, I don't know, the, the humanness of us, our, our bodies were, you know, molecules became cells and cells became multicellular and multicellular grow, grows into brains. My last comment is, and if there is religion in the world, it's like we are now beginning to look back and see our origins. There is something deeply religious about that. So, my comment. Well, I certainly agree with your last comment, but I think we just define aspirations differently. I think what I'm calling emergence, you're calling aspirations. It's true, atoms are an emergent phenomenon. Galaxies are an emergent phenomenon, but it doesn't mean that there was a desire somehow to make something different. It, it, it came about. The rules place when Okay. We, we have different metaphors. Thank you. Uh, would just uh, for a change of language, would you accept that creav- creativity instead of emergent phenomena? Uh, I didn't get that. That's what could be heard. Would you accept the term creativity instead of emergent phenomena? Uh, in, in which case, there is a creativity of some sort at a very basic level. Wherever there is interaction, there's greater complexity. Uh, but whether it's really creative or destructive would depend on conditions. Uh, with, in human beings, it would mean honesty just as a basic thing to begin with. Well, to me, um, talking about the universe itself before any kind of intelligence as being creative is a way that our intelligence explains what it would be if we had done that. Do you know what I mean? So, um, yes, I mean, in some sense, you can say the ultimate nature of the universe is eternal creativity. You could say that. But that is this meaning God that I'm talking about, helping me to understand what's going on there. Thank you so much for coming. I loved, I feel like a lot of your experiences really mirror because I grew up being an atheist although I was in a Bible belt but I love that prayer in the sense that and and it ties together your emergence and ascending beyond because I believe what's happening with the Muslim world right now is what happened when the Protestants and the Catholics used to kill each other and we have transcended beyond the Bible because we believe women are not lesser than men slavery is wrong even though it's in the Bible and that gays shouldn't be killed and that's what I believe should be the next transcendence because this is the emergence that we would hopefully try to lift I think one of the stunning statistics is 36 percent of Muslims still believe that it is the obligation of a daughter to behave in a way to not shame the family. So that's the emergence that I see and really resonate with you. So thank you very much for a lot of um, tying this together for me. And, and um, because it feels like, oh, as all these Lucerne cyclotron data comes out, yeah, it's playing hide and seek with God. And it's just fascinating. But I love how you just package it into such a beautiful um, for us to find our own meaning. So maybe what I would submit to you, maybe it's my own metaphor, is, you know, instead of the original sin, we're born with this debt that we can never repay. There's just so much beauty in nature, in discovering what's happening with our universe, that it would be our life journey to be in gratitude for all this beauty. And, and I, I loved what all those different, it looked like the Ten Commandments to me. <laughs> you know, it's really, really wonderful. So thank you. Thank you. And um, I, I love what you said. And at the end, I would just add that um, not only do we owe gratitude, but we have a commitment to make this process of 
the evolution of intelligent life go on. We could only be here because of the struggles of our ancestors, and we owe it to the future. Not only do we owe it to the future, if, if there aren't any future generations, everything we're doing right now is utterly meaningless and pointless. If you knew that the day after you die, you could live a perfectly fine life, and the day after you die, everybody else would die too. If you knew that, what would be the point of writing a book? What would be the point of raising a child? What would be the point of doing anything, really? We get the meaning of our lives from the fact that we're part of something that's ongoing, and we have to contribute to that. Thank you. Hi. Yes, you were talking about human beings need for meaning making and to have some kind of overarching concept and I'm thinking instead of God a great Unitarian Charles Darwin suggested evolution and I'm wondering why not that instead thank you evolution is absolutely crucial we can't understand anything without evolution but 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 do you actually feel a personal connection to evolution I mean, can you pray to it? Can you think about it? Can you feel it uh, sort of embracing you? Can you feel any of that? I mean, that's really, I think, the difference. There are a number of scientists who have proposed uh, scientifically responsible ways of thinking about God. Um, some have proposed evolution as God. Some have said, well, it's reality itself. It's the power. Um, so Michael Lerner says it's the power of transformation. I mean, there are all these sort of vague abstractions. And they're all useful, but they're not, none of them are personal. And so that, I think, is the missing, is the missing part of those concepts. Thank you. Oh. Well, you know, I just, hope, I just hope you'll read my book because, frankly, this, you know, in 40 minutes, I cannot. <laughs> Thank you so okay. much, Nancy. Thank this you, everybody. Was...